Good morning. My name is Wes. I'm one of the pastors here at South Langley. Yesterday, we had a service here, and, and I closed those blinds thinking it was going to be sunny this morning. How? Quite disappointing. Can somebody just open those blinds? Like, Rob, please, we, we need more light on this side so I can see you more clearly. Thanks. And Miranda, it is good. Like, Jeff was getting on my nerves. <laughs> But it is great. We've anticipated your arrival here in Landon. Good to have you here as well. And, and I suspect Jeff is up with the other kids in, in Sunday school, so that's a good thing. Time can be very confusing. You know, I look at our clock here and I realize that I have an extra hour this morning. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm just very thankful that I didn't preach last Sunday that Caleb did, and he did an incredible job, didn't he? Like, amazing. It, it, Caleb's young. He's in university. He knows what it's like to, to preach on, on little sleep, because he does that all the time at school. And so it was the perfect Sunday for him to be up and, and just use those skills that, that come with youth. I, I truly need my sleep, and I slept well last night, and it's good to be here. In some ways, we've arbitrarily defined time by the clocks we wear or carry with us. You know, my watch has a second hand, and, and we boil down time even, even to the seconds, and, and, and we manage it to the seconds today. Before personal wristwatches, we told time by the shadow on our sundials, right? And, and, and that kind of helped us through the day. Farmers. Like if you were a farmer, or if you are a farmer, like you probably can go out into the field and you watch the sun as it arcs from east to west across the sky and you know, you know what time it is. You probably know someone or you had a father that, that could do that, stand in the field and tell you the time of day. Some people use their stomachs to tell time. It was Pippin in The Lord of the Rings who introduced us to the first and second breakfast, Levensies, luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, and supper. And your stomach might be telling you now, Wes, it's time to get moving, let's get going here. It's almost noon. It was August 23rd, 2013. I went to bed setting the alarm for 6 a.m. Nathan, our youngest, was going on a youth event Saturday morning. And Kevin, who was a youth pastor at the time, lives up the hill from us. He was picking Nathan up and was going to take him to church. I didn't have to take him. And so I told Nathan, make sure that you're ready to go when the alarm goes at 6. It was a hot, humid night, one of those sticky nights. I woke with a start, looked at the watch beside, or the clock beside the bed, time to go. Ripped over to Nathan's room, opened the door, said, Nathan, time to go, shook him. Went in the kitchen, started getting ready so that he could eat a bit before he headed up to Kevin's place. Nathan wearily comes out of the room and he says, Dad, what, what time is this? Says, it's a little after six now, come on, keep moving. We, we don't want to miss your ride. I did not want to drive him to church. <laughs> he said, Dad, Dad, look, look at the clock. And so I looked at my wristwatch it says, it, I, I looked at it, it was 3 a.m. I looked at the <laughs> clock in the kitchen. We have two clocks in the kitchen. 3 a.m., looked at the microwave clock, 3 a.m. I said, 
Nathan, I'm, I'm sorry. Go to bed, go to bed. But make sure you get up when the alarm goes off. <laughs> I went to bed, but I didn't go back to bed. I went to the living room and lay down on the couch because it was way cooler there. More windows, more airflow. I woke with a start. I jumped off the couch. I heard a door slam, engine start. I said, we missed the ride. Kevin had come, knocked on the door. The house was black. He had left without. I go to Nathan's room. I'm angry now. Nathan, time to get up. We've missed you. And now I have to take you to church. Go to the kitchen, turn the light on, get stuff ready. Nathan wanders into the kitchen. Dad, what time is it? I said, it's a little after six, get moving. I said, Dad, no, no, look at the clock. And I, I looked, at, looked at my wristwatch, it's four, four, I look at the kitchen clock, 4.30, microwave, 4.30. I said, Nathan, I'm sorry. Go to bed. But make sure you get up when the alarm goes off. The alarm went off at six. He got his ride. But time can be so confusing. The teacher in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes has something to say about time. And I invite you to find your way over to Ecclesiastes on whatever device you have. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So open that up, open your Bible or open your, your smartphone up to that and, and just keep your, your finger there. We're going to hear the first part of Ecclesiastes chapter 13 sung to us this morning, so enjoy. This passage of scripture I've used for both weddings and funerals. I've actually used it at someone's wedding and at their funeral. I've never used it at a baby dedication. And I'm thinking, boy, that, that will be a great passage to use in the future at a parent-child dedication. All of life fits into this passage of scripture. Pete Seeger, when he wrote this song from Ecclesiastes chapter three, titled it, Turn, Turn, Turn. To everything there is a season. It was 1965 when this song became a number one hit. The Vietnam War was dividing the US. Violent protests were taking place across the country. Pete Seeger wrote this as a peace protest song. His point? It's time to turn from war to peace. This is a great conclusion, but this is not the point of the teacher of Ecclesiastes. This wasn't his point at all. Much of our lives are spent trying to figure out the time. Is it six or is it only three in the morning? If only we knew when we should get up to go, when we should hold on, when we should let go, when we should speak, or when we should be silent. What should we love? What should we hate? Be wary of the people who have it figured out. The teacher is a very wise man, and he didn't have it all figured out. Following this mesmerizing and lilting poem, the teacher jars us back to reality. He jars us back to reality with a question in verse 9. But this isn't the first time he uses this question, it's actually a refrain that, that follows us through the book. And this is the question, what do people really get for all their hard work? This question gets asked in the opening lines of the book, verse 3, chapter 1. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? 
And he attempts an answer in, in chapter 2 and verse 11. And I love how this reads in the message. And he answers it this way. He says, Then I took a look, a good look at everything I'd done, looked at all the sweat and hard work. But when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke. Smoke and spitting into the wind. There was nothing to any of it. Nothing. It's meaningless, the teacher says. But let's read further on with verse 10 now. I've seen the burden that God has placed on us all. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the heart, in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So I concluded there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. And I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear Him. What is happening now has happened before, and what will happen in the future has happened before, because God makes the same things happen over and over and over and over again. The teacher makes two observations. We humans carry a burden given by God. And I was thinking about this, like what is this burden that we're carrying? And let me make one suggestion. Later on in the chapter, in verses 18 to 22, we're, we're not gonna have an opportunity to read it this morning, but if you can just glimpse at that briefly, the teacher says that from his observations, Humans are not much different from animals. He's continually making comparisons throughout the book. He's compared the wise with the unwise, and now he compares humans with animals. And he says there's not much difference between us and them. Both breathe, both die, both are buried. The burden given to us by God is we, unlike animals, think about life. We want to know that it has some meaning. We want to think about our end and think that our end has meaning. We can't accept the evidence that says there's nothing more to life than what we can see under the sun. There's a mystery to life. There, there must be something over the sun. We shouldn't be surprised by this burden. The teacher tells us that God has planted eternity into our hearts, so we shouldn't be surprised that, that we think there's something more out there We've been drawn to this verse over and over again throughout every sermon we've had here in Ecclesiastes. We want more than what we see that's under the sun. We want to know that there's something over the sun. If it doesn't exist, if there's nothing over the sun, why do we long for it so? The teacher isn't quick to spiritualize our lives away. We're both physical beings and spiritual beings, and he doesn't negate one for the other. He concludes that there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. He sums it up this way in verses 12 and 13. So I conclude there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are the gifts from God. You know, this certainly wasn't the religious world that I grew up in. These kind of pleasures were met with disapproval 
Frowns and furrowed brows were signs of spirituality. How did we get it so wrong? When we take a look at the life of Jesus, he lived out the teacher's conclusion. Jesus' words to his disciples, to us, is this, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I've come that you might have the best life, the fullest life ever. That's the kind of life I want. Part of the teacher's message gets lost in the New Living Translation of verse 12, but it comes out in the New International Version. Here's what it reads in, in the New Living Translation. So I conclude that there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And now in the New International Version, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. This do good while they live is, is lost in the New Living Translation. Happiness and joy is not about a selfish pursuit of personal fulfillment. We're instructed to do good. The teacher always pulls us back down under the sun, grounding us in the here and now. We hear about people talking about random acts of kindness or paying it forward. They've actually come up with a random acts of kindness day, February 17th, who knew? You know, I did my random act of kindness on February 16th. There's a guy, I was coming down 216th back to church and there's a guy that had run out of gas. He was in the middle of the road. I was quite angry with him. Like, get off the road, guy. But, but something in me said, well, I should maybe just see if he's having some problems. So I rolled down the window and said, I'm going by. I'm hearing some really good language on his phone. And, and, and he looks over and sees me and he said, any problems is, and couldn't hear what he said, so I pulled over. He had run out of gas, and he had no money. So I said, I'll take you to the gas station. Bought him a gas can, filled it with gas, gave him money for gas, came back. I'm done. For the year, I'm done. I got my random act of kindness <laughs> done. Oh, it, it, it feels good. You know what? Jesus had a name for all this. He called it loving your neighbor loving your neighbor live your life generously towards others and you'll improve your mental emotional and spiritual well-being you know we always wait for studies to prove these things and, and studies are actually proving that as we are generous with others we will actually do good for ourselves I just want to remind you, it, it hit me that this MCC request, Midnight Central Committee request for these countries in Africa, here's an opportunity for us to do good. We might disagree and say, well, that's their own fault for being at war all the time. No, we get a chance to be generous into this situation. I encourage you, you might not want to use MC, use whatever organization you want, but help out in this situation. Do good. The teacher comes back to another reoccurring theme, and this is in verse 15. It's the seeming never-changing cycle of life. He's begun the chapter by describing all of life through contrasting pictures, birth and death, dancing and grieving, building up and tearing down, loving and hating, laughing and crying. This cycle on the surface appears to be a closed circle. What goes around comes around. 
Listen to what he says. What is happening now has happened before, and what will happen in the future has happened before, because God makes the same things happen over and over and over and over again. Doesn't this remind you of the movie Groundhog Day? You know, that, that seems what's happening now has happened before. The same things happen over and over. And in the movie, Bill Murray, the main character, has to live one day, February 2nd, Groundhog Day, over and over again. A few weeks ago, a newer version of this movie came out, and it, it was released, and, and it's kind of a teen movie. Now, I hardly go to movies, so I'm not recommending this movie for you. I'm simply taking information from a review I took. So don't take this as an endorsement to go see the movie, please. But barely 25 minutes into the movie, Samantha, the main character, dies in a tragic car accident. But then she wakes up to relive that day over and over again. The day she's designed to relive is February 12th. And as she relives this day, she begins changing little things. But these changes result in other people dying instead of her. She eventually tries to make sure that no one dies on the one day. In a movie review notes, she writes and says, she discovers that small cruelties and minuscule kindnesses can have big effects. And summing up the movie, he writes, this movie, Before I Fall, suggests that we treat every day with the same tender touch as though anything we do might have great consequences. And he concludes, it's probably even right. So much of our lives is lived in the future, tomorrow, maybe next week, when I graduate, after I retire. Alfred D'Souza made this observation of life. For a long time, it had seemed to me that life was about to begin, real life. But there was always some obstacle in the way, something to get through first, some unfinished business, time to be served, a debt to be paid. Then life would begin. At last, it dawned on me that these obstacles were my life. We hosted a community memorial service here yesterday. And one of the songs that was sung was John Lennon's Beautiful Boy. And a line from that song just grabbed my attention, just caught me. The line is this, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. The teacher wants us to focus less on time and more on living. He wants us to stop playing the game of life and embrace the gift of life. Verse 14, God's purpose is that people should fear him. And this reminds us that we're not God we're to revere him, reverence him. This is what it means to fear God, revering him, recognizing that God is God, which allows us to relax and be human. You may have heard this story before. It's by Bill Harley. It was told on National Public Radio, the U.S. version of our CBC. His young son, Dylan, played t-ball and on the other team was a girl he called Tracy, and it seemed that Tracy's team 
was always the one that they were playing against. Tracy was not a baseball player. There was a notable deficiency in her game. She loped more than she ran. Her hearing and her eyesight were impaired. But there was a carefree way about her. She didn't hit the ball off the tee often, and if she did, it was by accident. And she was always put out before she got to first base. But it wound up that they played Tracy's team on the last game of the season. And Tracy was at bat one more time. And by fluke, Tracy took a big swing and she hit the ball. And it sailed to the outfield. And because the outfielders had cheated and come to the infield, and most of them weren't paying attention, she was able to head for first, and then she got to first, and they cheered her on from first to second. And then the crowd got even louder as they cheered her on from second to third, and as she rounded third, her coach was waving her home. But there along the third baseline was a dog. And the dog woke up because of the crowd's noise and, and sat up and began wagging his tail and smiling at her. And, and it was like one of those slow-motion action movies Whereas Tracy turned around the third base bag, she saw her coach, she saw the dog, and she left the third baseline and ran to the dog. <laughs> the crowd was silent. And then they began applauding as she dropped to her knees and gave a huge hug to the dog. And Bill sums up the story this way. Two roads diverged on a third baseline. Tracy went for the dog. We play hard at life. We think we've figured out the game we're in. We run as fast as we can around the bases. And then something catches our eye out of the, catches us off guard and out of the corner of our eye, we see something, something good, something way more important than trying to run home from third base. We've been playing the wrong game our whole lives. The teacher in Ecclesiastes reminds us of what's important in life. It isn't trying to gather wisdom. It certainly isn't running after success. The three biggies, money, sex, and power aren't worth it in the end. Recognizing we're creatures of the Creator is the beginning. Recognizing God is God, and I'm part of His good creation, not its ruler is the starting point. This morning, I invited George Brunetti to share his story. George is married to Jacqueline. They have two adult sons, Ben and Matthew. And they've been coming to South Langley for a short time now. In fall, George received some news regarding his health that caused him and Jacqueline to kind of stop for a moment and recognize what is truly important in life. So we've taped George's testimony here, and so we're going to watch the video now. Yeah, it was about um, October Thanksgiving time last year. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, cancer, and uh, the outcome wasn't too cheery. Um, but uh, just going back prior to that day, it was uh, probably about two weeks prior, um, 
I was quite jaundiced, quite ill, quite sick, and I wasn't feeling the greatest, and I knew something serious was wrong. I was in quite a bad frame of mind, and uh, my wife Jacqueline, she's great at doing this. She, uh, she always shares uh, chapters, verses with me. I was sitting in my living room, reading Isaiah 43, and I couldn't get past the first verse. The last three words were, uh, you are mine, and I just looked at those words, and then the presence of God is right before me. He said, George, don't worry, you're mine. And it was about two weeks later, I'm sitting in the doctor's office, all the tests came in, and he said to me, so I'm gonna send you to a specialist. I'm not sure. I'm just saying this looks like cancer. And I walked out of that office and I sat in my truck. And I had to look in the rearview mirror because I felt myself grinning. I just felt overwhelming peace. And I thought, how can I feel like this? And I just said, you know, look, I've got a wife. I've got two sons. And I just had no right to have this kind of peace. And God met me again. He gave me just a sample of what his incredible love is all about. I knew at that moment that, that his love so overwhelming and so powerful that my family was going to be fine. Um, and from then, I went through this for the last five months. And he has grown in me. He has given me peace. He's given me confidence. He's taken away all my anxiety, he's taken away all my pain, he's taken away all my suffering, and he's just given me peace and joy. He has been with me through this whole journey, every single day. And it was funny, it was about a month ago, God spoke to me again and he just said, George, I've carried you for the last four months, now you're gonna walk beside me. I recently read a book. You might not be cured, but you're healed. And I honestly feel like God has remade me spiritually. And I believe He's in the process of remaking me physically. He's never left me. I've never cried out, Where are you? He's never been silent. He's been with me in a very real, a very practical way. Dave did a sermon back in uh, early January. It was kind of on focus. And it made me realize that, well, number one, life is a, it's a precious gift. But not only that, to be part of God's plan privilege <clears throat> and 
his plan is finished in 60 years. Uh, that's fine. 